Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, friends, stands. As promised, when I had the interview with Ken Toltz, we talked about perhaps bringing on a Palestinian to talk about the other side or the other perspectives that us Jews and Jews living in Israel, Israelis living with, maybe you should be aware of. Now, I understand that this episode is coming out after a terrorist attack that just occurred in Yaakov. It's so sad and devastating to keep having so much violence and death. My heart goes out to everyone right now who needs comfort. By the way, I released a Yehiratzon song last week in honor and dedication for all those who are in need of healing. I will share that in the links. Also, I'd like to Shout out there to all the people who are devastated due to Adirakovsky's death last Wednesday. Our heart goes out to all the pain out there. We're thinking of you. Now we must continue with our throwback tradition. So make sure to check out the Black History Month episode with Aliyah Shaw from last February. I will, of course, link it for you in the show notes. I don't like putting disclaimers and trigger warnings. Obviously, read my titles. Decide for yourself whether this is something you should be engaging with or not. And today's episode is no different. As always, I love hearing from you. Thank you so much for your messages and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Sally Abed with us from Palestine. Israel, actually. From Israel, okay. Israel, Palestine, I guess. Perfect. It's so wonderful to have you on. And I want to thank Ken Toltz for introducing us and making this episode happen. So welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I was very excited to to get your uh, invite and I'm really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Normally I say give us your religious and professional background and I'll take that from you as well. Okay. <laughs> uh, my religious background, I actually grew up a Christian, a Malkite Catholic, which is a very, very cool uh, church here, Eastern Church, that belongs to the Vatican, but we pray in Greek. So it's very, very, uh, it's a minority within the Christian minority in Israel, Palestine. Uh, so I grew up in a, in a Palestinian town that is all Christian. If you ask me now, I'm, I'm, I probably identify more as an atheist, as a spiritual atheist, if you may. Professionally, I have worked in various sectors, but in the last four years, I have been the research development manager for Standing Together. And I have also been part of the national leadership as, you know, a Palestinian activist. So thank you for agreeing to have this conversation. And it's not your first, right? Hello. Hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I would say I'm overly ambitious if I think we're going to solve the Middle East crisis in one episode. But that is the goal for today. I was counting on that. <laughs> well, let's get started. I can just hear or see eyebrows going off, people listening and thinking, oh, Christian Palestinian, that's not the real deal. Can you differentiate for anyone who just thinks 
everyone's the same or this is completely irrelevant. Christian Palestinians have different goals or a different agenda than Muslim Palestinians. Can you break it up a little bit just for people to have more clarity on who you're representing? I don't need to break it up. There is really nothing to break up. We are part of one people, the Palestinian people. The majority of the intellectual resistance of Palestine and the Palestinian identity, a large amount of them have been Christian Palestinians. There has never been a clear divide in that sense, in, in the context of nationality and resistance for liberation, I don't think. So there's really nothing to break out here. So the goals are aligned. Is that what you're saying? The goals of who, who you know, there are, you know, we are a, a pluralistic, diverse community, you know, and I don't think that division necessarily has to go. I mean, obviously, you could see uh, differences just because of, you know, mere religion. We see that, uh, you know, even the different fractions of Christianity, you see a difference or different fractions of Muslims. But as, as the Palestinian identity comes, and I think it's as diverse as our society and the division is not necessarily religious if that makes sense okay does that make sense yeah <laughs> it makes sense but we're gonna have to go a little deeper oh go for it so let's start off with the claim to israel and what are the biggest conflicts that the jews and the palestinians or the israelis and the palestinians have right now or always have had. Well, there are different. Do you want the one that people are expecting to hear about, like the religious claim? <laughs> or do you want to hear more like the colonial theory, you know, and the fact that Western people came and colonized and then basically weaponized Zionism and and basically brought to there, there's so many different things on the spectrum. Of course, it's 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 a mixture of many of them. I'm not trying to avoid the question. I just. Well, there may be overlap. No, they, they overlap, and I, I don't think this is a constructive question, to be honest. Okay, so correct um, me. What should the question be? The question should be, who benefits? Who has the interest in living in peace and security in our shared homeland right now? Uh, I think the question should be, the paradigm shouldn't be, who is it this or that? It shouldn't be that kind of dichotomy. I think that's what has been so destructive over the decades in this conversation. And I think it should be more, you know, who is the majority of the people that live in this land, that claim this land to be their homeland? And is there a majority that has the interest in peace and in security and in an equal and just society and democracy? And the answer is yes. It's very simple. Now, the question that we ask ourselves after we confirm that fact, which I don't think anyone would, would argue with me, the majority of the people have the interest to live in peace and security in their own land. Both Israelis and Palestinians. Now, the question that comes after that is, if that's the majority, then who's the minority that has the interest in maintaining the status quo? It's very easy to point the fingers on those people and be, oh, it's actually a minority, an economic minority, a settler minority, and political minority, elite, basically. We have to understand and I don't have the full answer. I don't think anyone has. But we have to understand how do we organize together as a majority under our shared interests and our shared love for our shared homeland. And how do we break this, this cycle of violence, which no one is benefiting? No, 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 I understand your question, but I have been there. And I'm telling you as someone who is 
on the ground and, and the people that I interact with as a Palestinian and the complexities of the things that we navigate once you actually live together. It's just the understanding, the deep understanding of shared dist destiny and shared homeland becomes just so obvious that your question becomes, you know, it's just irrelevant. It no place. Yeah, it has no place. How do we break the cycle of violence? Because if we go through history and just let's go through a more more recent event, and that was probably 10 years ago, anytime there is the idea to give away land or to try to who, who gives extend away Aza, Gaza, when Israelis were leaving Gaza, and I, I was little, I remember watching it on TV one summer, there was this hope that we're, we're going to give away land and there's going to be peace, and that gave, didn't result in wait, it. Wait, who gave away land? Which land? Which land? So was you're asking whose land was it originally to be giving away well, to? You. What do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm serious because you are you're making a lot of assumptions right now. So gave away land. Israel didn't give away land that it occupied. You can give away land that was occupied. That's one. Two, the disconnect from from Gaza was not a retrieval of military rule. True. Israel has substantially but not fully retrieved the the troops on the ground but gaza is still occupied by air force by the sea but it's sieged it has never been liberated never israel controls virtually everything that happens in gaza and i i, I so that's not a valid example i won't even entertain it but it didn't result in a positive why would it Because How? there was oh. a green, there was this, what do you call it? When you extend a branch, then why did they leave? What was the, what was the hope in leaving so we could get one step closer to peace? And that didn't bring the so result. You think, you think Ariel Sharon had an interest in peace when he retrieved from Gaza? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm I, I am so not qualified. Oh, so in so my I, opinion, yeah, obviously I'm not a political me. analyst um, to actually give you like a lecture right now about the motives behind, you know, the disconnect that was from Gaza. But no one had an actual interest in peace at that point. I don't think Israel at any point has given a real interest in peace that wasn't under the hegemony of the Jewish priority and the Jewish supremacy. Over What do you mean by that? Even at Oslo, which were probably the peak, the biggest branch of all, right? You said like a branch, a leaves branch. Oslo was the biggest branch of all, right? And if you really look at Oslo and the Oslo Accords, it was conditional. It was always conditional. Even my democracy as a Palestinian in Israel is conditional. My existence in my own homeland, which is Israel, okay, right now, is conditional. Israel, as it, as it exists today, cannot contain me as a native, and as a non-Jewish native. It cannot have me as part. My existence collides with the current definition of the existence of the Israeli state. It just collides. It doesn't work. And I am a Palestinian native. I'm a Palestinian non-Jewish native. Okay? And I live in Israel. And many people like me lived here 75 years ago that are no longer there. 
and many of them live in the West Bank and many of them live in Gaza. Gaza is, is predominantly refugees from Yaffa and from Akka and from Haifa. And what happens is that everything, every single attempt for peace has been very conditional to completely maintain the Jewish supremacy. And I think that the Jewish, that by supremacy, I mean like prioritizing the existence and the predominance of the Jewish people in, in the whole land. That was always the case. That was, these were always the conditions and Palestinians were not even allowed to resist them. Like here's the olive branch, but it's not an olive branch. It was never about an olive branch. And um, you said what needs to be done to, and, and by the way, when I say these things, I'm not demonizing Israelis. I'm demonizing the political leadership that was there that had the interest to advance these things. And it, it's very important to understand that. Because the Israeli public did want the olive branch. I really believe that. I believe the majority of the Israeli public, at least in Oslo, during Oslo in the 90s, up until very recently, they really, the majority of the people had an olive branch. I really believe that. So when I say these things, I'm really... My, Attacking the leadership and not the people. Exactly. And of the Palestinian leadership, by the way. I, we could talk about that, but that's for another conversation. But the Palestinian leadership also never had the Palestinian people's interest in mind uh, in many ways. Not all of them, obviously, but, you know, the current one, at least. Definitely not. <laughs> and you asked what needs to be done. We need to build, rebuild the political will, the political capital in Israeli society and Palestinian society, but mainly Israeli, given that it, it has the upper hand uh, as the occupier. And we need to understand that. We need to build a political will to resist the occupation, not just out of solidarity and, you know, but out of deep understanding that the Israeli public has an interest in ending the occupation. It has an interest in peace. And you can't do that without building a, a joint struggle. By joint struggle, I mean Jewish Arab, but also social and geographic peripheries of Israel, religious and with secular. That's extremely important. That's one of the most polarizing forces in Israeli society, religious and secular. And we need to cross these things. We need to create those unlikely alliances in order to really build that political will to understand that the same people that have interest in maintaining what the status quo are the same people that are benefiting from the fact that the minimum wage hasn't been raised for many years. The housing crisis is increasingly escalating. People are really, you know, there is no affordable housing in Israel uh, anymore. It started with Tel Aviv, with the big cities, and now it's even in the peripheries. You just can't afford houses anymore. The fact that everything is becoming more, more and more and more expensive. The fact that inequality is becoming more. The fact that police brutality is affecting ultra-Orthodox communities, Ethiopian communities, former USSR immigrants, yes, and Palestinians. And the fact that we need to understand that systemic oppression across sections needs to really be connected to the fact that we also need to resist the occupation. That's how it's, it's very hard. Uh, and I could tell you it's our... Very simple. But it's very simple, right? I <laughs> okay, so let's take a few steps back. And thanks for explaining things and shifting the lens a little bit. 
so th- the way I've learned history is people would come in, you know, with guns or machete, whatever they had at the time, swords, and they would occupy land. And then eventually that land is theirs. And that's historically how land has been conquered. Currently, we have that going on with Russia and Ukraine. And the world just adjusts and borders adjust. My question is, where is our baseline right now? Are we talking about the same historical agreement or reality claim to the borders between the Mediterranean and Jordan? That piece of land. How sophisticated your question was to the very simple question of one state or two states. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved it. (laughs) Thank you. I don't think you're going to like my answer, but I don't care. I really don't care. (laughs) You know, I just want to live freely and equally in my homeland. And I want all my people to live freely and equally in their homeland. And I don't want it to be on the expense of the freedom and equality of other people that also consider my homeland their homeland. Okay. Very simple. That's a very legitimate response. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'll give you that. There is this concept called, and uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, Dimi. It's a non-Muslim resident of Muslim land. And I know you're not Muslim. And So like a goy almost? Exactly. It's second class citizens. They are not entitled to the same rights uh, mm. in terms of voting, social benefits, etc. Land ownership, health care, meaning anyone who's a guy in the Muslim land, thank you for that language, doesn't have the same rights. They don't have equality. And that's the reality that many or if not all Muslim countries operate. Is it? Really? Which countries? I mean, I'm not surprised. I could imagine like Saudi Arabia doing that or... But those are usually not natives, right? They're like immigrants who are not Muslim. Dimi was the name applied by the Arab Muslim conquerors to indigenous non-Muslim populations who surrendered by a treaty Mm. to Muslim domination. Islamic conquests expanded over vast territories in Africa, Europe, and Asia for over a millennia. Mm-hmm. 638 to 1683, a non-Muslim subject to a state governed according to the Sharia law, who is granted the freedom to worship and is entitled to the protection of life and property by the state, although constrained to pay a special tax and not granted the full legal status well, according to the Muslim Okay, subject. okay, 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 okay. I, I understand that, yeah. I don't think that's practiced anymore, by the way, but okay, you should continue your point. It's not practiced anymore. I don't think so. Anywhere? I don't think so. But what did you want? Does that ruin What was the question? If that's a standard (laughs) practice in the Muslim land, why should a Jewish state or Israeli state treat their goyim differently? Is this a real question? Okay. But but you weaponize that against Muslim Palestinians? No, I'm asking, is there a double standard here and how is that okay? Why is it okay on one end? One, you assume that this is still practiced in Muslim countries when you have no no backup to actually do that. I actually asked you and you couldn't even name one country that does that. Two, you assume that the Palestinian Muslim actually is relating to that just by the mere fact that he's Muslim and the fact that he actually agrees to that or subscribes to that value without questioning whether he actually agrees to that at all. Three... Are you okay with that? And if you are not okay with that, so why would you be okay with Israel doing that? Are you serious? No, I am. I, it's an offensive question. 
but I'm here to ask the complicated questions. It's a decisive question, regardless of whether I'm, I'm a Muslim or not. But especially the fact that most of my people around me that are Palestinian are Muslim. And just, you're, it's, it's an offensive question. It's, uh, I apologize. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but do you understand what I'm saying? One, you should be more, even if they do it, I would con condemn them just as much. And the fact that I am, so I should apologize for the crusaders and their killings because I'm Christian? Or, so I'm not or, referring to violent. I'm talking to rights of a first-class citizen versus second-class citizen. And you're okay and, with that? You think that's something that is uh, legitimate? I'm not going to say what's legitimate or not, but in Sharia law and where it's practiced, women, even if they are equal right. to the men in terms of their rights to the nation and the women don't have the same rights as the men. Yeah, it's the same, same as, as, as Halafa, right? And you have that in, in many. So does that mean that those are the things we're going to subscribe to? I don't think it's, can, you know, looking at religion as a way of, first of all, Israel is not a religious country. It's a secular country. It was founded by seculars. It was founded by, by, by communists, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know, they're not religious. Israel is not a religious place. The only thing, you know, the religion and the, and the Jewish claim for the land was a tool. It was an instrument. It was never about religion. Obviously, many people subscribe to that because they are, they do feel the religious connection and they went there and I see those people and I respect those people and I, I love that they feel that religious connection to be there. I really do. I respect it. But let's not be mistaken. Those are not the people that colonized. Those are not the people that did the project. Those are not the people that planned the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. They're not. Okay? The people that actually settled this land and colonized it are secular communists. <laughs> so let's let's put that there. And and we really need to understand that talking about religion in that way, you know, and, and who says that most, you know, even Palestinian, I don't think they, some of them might be Islamists and some of them might actually subscribe to that just the same as many ultra-Orthodox uh, politicians want to, to have halakha as uh, the law. And many... Zionist religious groups like we have right now want that. Does that make it okay? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anything, if, if faith will, will have any kind of conversation, it should be a bridging conversation of shared values. And, you know, to, to look at other Muslim countries that are doing bad things as something that justifies the Jewish country doing really bad things is just not the way to go. That's not how we can go forward. Not to complicate things deeper or more, I'm going to go there. <laughs> so we have United States that, and the Great Britain. We have all those first world countries and the same claims in politics with the riots and with anybody protesting. Everyone's sort of in the same boat. There's police brutality in the States. There's police brutality and racism in Europe, it's just everywhere. It's always been there. So I'm not going to say if it's okay in one place, how can we have the same standards for Israel or say that Israel should do it back to its second class citizens. But hey, let's look at America, the land of opportunity and where everyone wants to go. I mean, you could watch any shows on Netflix. They'll show you all the ways that America's racist and and people are disadvantaged in every area of their lives if they're, you know, 
born in the wrong place, you know, whatever it is. So why is Israel held to a higher standard if we're taking faith out of the discussion? I don't think it's it's a hold to higher standards. Yes, the U.S. is very is doing a lot of bad things. <laughs> I do think the U.S. is going towards a better place in many ways. Israel is obviously going the other way. We literally have a fascist government. Okay, we literally you have people in the states saying the same thing. I mean, maybe not under the Biden administration, but that. under Trump administration, definitely. And I would I would go, and I don't think. Israel is exceptional in any way and not for the bad either. You know, I don't think it's exceptional. Of course, you know, human rights violations are happening everywhere else. A lot of other countries have it. The U.S. has ethnically cleansed genocide and slavery in its pocket. That's insane. Okay, (laughs) like we understand that. I'm not saying Israel is exceptional in any way in what it did. It still doesn't mean that it didn't colonize and ethnically cleanse Palestinians and remains to oppress them and control them militarily. Okay? I was going to add, we have England, the Great Britain that did that to all the African, all the colonies, and you have all the Middle Eastern, and then you have all the Asian. (laughs) Those are the old school colonizers, and Zionism is a more neocolonial project, so it is more recent, and it's still active. There are actually people under the Israeli military control who don't have its citizenship. There is an actual de facto apartheid in like Hebron and many parts of the West Bank. So like this is this is happening right now. So, yes, it's not exceptional in a sense that it's not doing anything that other countries didn't do. It's just happening right now. It's an active occupation. And, and there is literally a fascist country while it, it, a fascist government that you know, the question, you know, what's the good thing about this government is that the question before was always, oh, are pro peace or pro security, pro peace or pro, uh, you know, in Israel, that's the conversation. And now, you know, it has become so radical that there's not even a question, you know, before, if you said Nakba, which refers to the ethnic cleansing in 48, uh, or you said, you know, many things that you know, we use people or occupation, even people would be like, really, they would be no, 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 you can't say Nakba. Now, even the, you know, the Ben Gvir and Smotrich, they say Nakba. They're okay. They're okay with the fact that Palestinians were ethnically cleansed. Because the question is not whether yes, Jewish supremacy, no Jewish supremacy. It's like Jewish supremacy. Yes, Jewish supremacy. Yes. There's an acknowledgement. Yes, exactly. And we're okay with that. And, and I think that's one of like, it's very sad, but it's, it's one of the good things. You know, no one can argue with me anymore. Before you could argue, someone like you, for example, which I'm, I'm assuming your orientation, given your, your, your questions, you would have argued with me about ethnic cleansing that happened in 48. Now you can't because they're saying it. <laughs> you know, you can't, you just can't. So you, you really need to understand, you know, where, where we're coming from. Now, I remember this realization from when I was just a child and all I knew was terrorist attacks. Or I remember the Intifada happening. My brother was having his bar mitzvah and I was, I don't know, six or seven. So that was very scary as a little kid, knowing that their bombs are just happening and people, you know, are dying. Um, and then you mature a little and then you understand there are two sides to every story. And there's a lot more 
trauma and history happening. There are two sides. There's this ongoing cycle of violence that keeps happening. You you were raised in Israel. You're an Israeli? I I was not raised in Israel, but we spent a lot of time there. I was raised in Moscow, Russia. Oh, oh, cool. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's uh, some way to to look at it. Crazy. I I think you should, you know, a lot of your questions have been a little bit defensive towards Israel, which I understand. I really understand it. And I need you to know that it's as important for me for this place to be it's it's actually probably more important for me than to you for this place to work properly and for everyone here and i can't it can't work for me if it doesn't work for jewish israelis it can't i always say that you know and i really mean it and you know if you're what do you mean by that can you if, explain that if you're pro if you want palestinian liberation you necessarily have to be pro israeli people you have to be and I need you to understand that, you know, because you have been so defensive about Israel and, you know, but it's like the big questions that you're asking that it, they're moral, philosophical questions that everyone can take a stand for. And like it's playing these identity, political identity games and, and who's first and who's second and who's more violent. And who's... obviously I have my own answers on those and I can tell you about the monopoly of violence that Israel has where it can, you know, terrorize people through <laughs> Uh, soldiers, and that's legitimate, while violent resistance is seen as terrorism. We could talk about that, you know, and about how the U.S. is using that with Iraq and with Afghanistan. And, you know, it's not exceptional to Israel. Again, for me, it's so important to fight for, I live in this society. I live in the Israeli society. It's essential, you know, even if I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like the a moral, beautiful Palestinian right now. Like, of course, we're brothers. We need to do this together. Yes, that too, obviously. I love the people here, you know. <laughs> obviously, that too. But it's also like a very, just to convince you, it's like a very egoistical interest for me, for this place to work. The question is, you know, so we shouldn't be defensive about the existence of Israel. That doesn't help anyone. It definitely doesn't help Jewish Israelis. It hasn't helped them. What do you mean when you say being defensive about Jewish Israel? About Israel, when you, all your questions have been, you know, but like, look at the Muslims, they're doing that. Look at the, oh, but like we, we tried uh, the, the branch leave and it didn't work, but we did this. But, but look at us, look at our morality, you know, and I don't think it should be, the morality should be, we should be comfortable with questioning the morality of the occupation and of the existence of Israel without questioning the right of its people to live in peace and in, in a refuge that recognizes them as a Jewish people in their land. You know what I mean? Okay. And let me explain where my questions are coming from. <laughs> are you getting frustrated with me? <laughs> no. I am not political. I've never lived in Israel other than being a foreign student. And I'm asking the questions of your typical mm-hmm. Jewish Orthodox person who grew up in the Jewish educational system those are the questions and those are the thoughts that are going through their minds. And this is the lens of which I'm asking the questions. I'm not coming as a historian or a politician. This is the angle that I'm coming from because there's so many people who think like this because they have lack of information or they're getting their information from one type of source with one message. I just want to explain to you why I'm asking the questions the way I am. And the way you're explaining it is very helpful. That actually helps a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate that. No, because it made 
like it clicked for me now like oh yeah like we're just a little bit uh, thank you for that oh i was frustrating a little bit but like i really appreciate like it i'm actually like wow like thank you for bringing context light spot that i had that oh she actually just is asking what everyone else around her is asking which can be frustrating for me but also you know it's just very real for you so which is you. why i want to have this conversation well, because I, I, I want to fill in those blind spots because we're well, not sorry. getting in the information i actually feel bad because now you like clicked something for me and we I'm should like, have oh. started with that well we can <laughs> restart no, but I love you should leave that. This is actually amazing. I will. I will. This is coming from a place of curiosity. And this is what we do. It's the first time I'm doing this topic on this podcast. But that's essentially what I do with all my guests. I am not a therapist. I'm not a politician. I simply ask questions that your average person with no information or minimal information or one-sided information is thinking. Yeah. Well, your questions were definitely one-sided, but I, now I understand why. And it's like, it's legitimate. And, and thank, you. thank you. We all know how um, binary thinking works. And if you're always reinforced with the same information you're thinking, then that's the only way you view the world. And you know what's nice thing about Jewish Arab partnership in Israel is that it expand, it makes your mind, your thinking about this thing and your perspective just so much more flexible, if that makes sense. You just see things differently through this partnership. It really is magical. Like, it's just so powerful, uh, Jewish-Arab partnership, when it's done right and not conditional, and you know? this is the second generation for me because my father represents European interests for Jewish people, and very often they work together with Muslim leadership because a lot of our halakhot align when it comes to Brit, when it comes to um, Shrita, so they yeah. have to work together in a lot of European countries to fight ban on halal and kosher meat and circumcision. Cool. Okay. And I recognize you're not Muslims. No, no. Okay. But that's another thing that we are, you know, a little bit different that, you know, I, I'm a socialist <laughs> and I'm very like secular in my thinking. I, I never think out of like faith. And um, I need, that's like another adjustment for me as well. But I, I grew up very aware of it aware yeah i had a very heavy educate catholic education the catholic education here in the east is different it's not as strict but it's still very like vivid and and engaged it's nice to to dive into that perspective okay well in another world i'd love to hear more about your religious journey but i want to go back to our political conversation so now having this context how else can you educate or fill in some of our blind spots? I think I, I saw, I said a lot of things that hopefully will be a little bit like, that will sound nonsense to you or will sound like weird. And that's okay. I think a lot of our common sense right now really relies on that like zero sum of the two people. Uh, and we need to just shift to the paradigm to shared homeland. Um, it's, is it it's, possible? Yeah. So yeah. How, how does it work? And and one more thing I want to add, and I have this experience in social media, the more extreme voices always get more virality. So if you have somebody saying some crazy stuff or doing something so crazy, they go viral versus somebody who is more moderate. 
And obviously, this also manifests itself in the political system, where the more extreme parties end up getting elected and heard more because they're more extreme and they're louder. Accurate. Yeah. It's not about loudness. I think it's about one over like the left in Israel, as well as in the U.S., by the way, is the fact that the left hasn't been leading a wide coalition of people. It has been very narrow, you know, mostly a white, uh, mostly secular. Here First in you said our... wide with a D versus white. narrow, and then you said white Whites. with a T. Now okay. it's mostly white. Okay. Or here in our case, you know, Ashkenazi, secular, middle class, not a lot of working class, uh, not a lot of social and geographic peripheries of Israel. So you wouldn't see a lot of people here that are Mizrahi or religious or uh, um, Ethiopian or even uh, former USSR, Russian-speaking people. You wouldn't see them. And they are marginalized communities in Israeli society, uh, really marginalized. And the left has really forsaken them completely. They have overlooked them completely for for at least two decades, if not more than that. In the meantime, uh, you know, Bibi Netanyahu has mastered right populism. He has been talking to these people. He hasn't been serving their interest. To the contrary, uh, you know, he has been privatizing the different networks that support these communities, especially the Haredi community, ultra-Orthodox community, especially, you know, that, and, and he has been... Comp- but at the same time, he has been able to make alliances with those parties that, you know, of the base of these people, as well as himself. He has a huge, you know, who votes for Likud? Uh, you know, religious, Mizrahi, peripheries. It's because he talks to them in many ways, in his populist way. And I think that's the problem. And uh, yes, you're right. I do think that, unfortunately, bad things do get more attention than good old uh, organizing and activism and uh, it's not very uh, attractive one-on-ones and organizing people especially now like you see the big protests in Israel you know tens of 150,000 people in the streets but you also need to talk to these people right and educate them and what I'm trying to say is that it's not very attractive the work that we do but we also believe that you can start building a new infrastructure for a new kind of alliances, a new kind of politics in Israeli society that can actually compete against the right populist government. So what does that look like? That looks like Bibi Netanyahu, for example, in his recent elections. I'm going to give you a very specific example. He promised people three things. One, to decrease lower the price of gas, electricity, and, you know, the immunities that has been raised recently in the last uh, government. And he's like, oh, such a bad government. I can't believe he, they let you pay this much for, for electricity. I'm going to make sure it's, it drops down completely, immediately. Uh, second thing, he knows there's a housing crisis. He's like, oh, we're going to subsidize housing for young couples for young families, that's going to happen. That's part it. I promise you immediately. Third thing he said, free education, age zero to three. He actually had all of these things publicized. And who's in most need of these things? Marginalized groups. So they go with him. And now what happened? 
he canceled all of these three things immediately. He didn't even pretend, you know, and obviously now he's going to like start and he obviously has. So what we want to do, we are actually working on the ground with like over 20 groups of organized activists from the peripheries, you know, in Tiberias, which has, you know, predominantly Mizrahi Likud voters or uh, mixed cities like Kilud or Yafo or Ramle, which are which had a lot of tension and has both poor Palestinian and Jewish communities. And we want to basically create a conflict between the base of this government, the voters, their voters, and the government, the leadership. And we can do that. We just need to find the populist right agenda with an enough competitive story. And that competitive story cannot be about Ashkenazi army generals or high-tech millionaires. You know, it needs to be about the people, the majority of the people that live here. And that's what we need to do. And that's what we're trying to do on a daily basis. It's, it's hard work, but uh, we really think, you know, it's the only way. It just sounds like an uphill battle because there's so many parties. It is. Oh, yeah. There's so many people with so many extreme different views and ideas. The, the joke is every, every taxi driver has this answers. <laughs> this is so true. This is like so accurate. <laughs> yes, that's true. And pluralism is okay. But I do think that it needs to be under a certain umbrella. We, we do need to build a certain ecosystem that agrees on basic values. And I think that's easier. And the basic values aren't having equal rights. Is that peace, equality and social justice? Yeah. Peace is what? Peace is an end to the occupation and uh, a freedom and independence for all people, however that looks like. Equality is civil equality, gender equality and national equality and economic equality, of course, and social justice, which also, I guess, encompasses all of that, but in a much deeper sense of systemic, a system that can maintain a sustainable equality and justice, which, which is also economic, not just political. Two more things I want to do if you have time, and hopefully they're quick. <laughs> One thing is, something that keeps coming up is the concept of Israel has the right to defend itself. It always irked me the wrong way. Why is that language being used? A right to defend yourself? It's like something domestic abuse victims have to like learn from a therapist or a police officer. You have the right to defend yourself. Why is that the language that is being used? Or the Israeli defense forces, right? Instead of being the military or the army, it's the defense force. I mean... I'm trying to understand what bugs you in that. Like for me, it's very obvious for me what bugs me in that in that sentence. Okay, what bugs you? <laughs> I mentioned it before. I think the monopoly over violence that Israel has right uh, at this point. You know, it's like this. Um, I think Israel has a little bit, at least the Israeli public. Yeah, not. It, I don't think the um, leadership sees it that way, but I think the public, the Israeli public, perceives mm -hmm. themselves as you know this bullied, weak kid, but he's now, in fact, a very big, muscular bully who doesn't realize he's bullied because he's been bullied before. And yes, I think, you know, a lot, you know, that, that Jewish people have been, quote unquote, bullied before. And that's an understatement. I think they still have, the Israeli public still like adapts that mentality and it just doesn't see. So you're saying 
Israel labeled themselves like that to portray themselves as the underdog yeah, instead sure. of this. Yeah, I mean, the, as the victim, uh, as they're mm -hmm. the ones and everything around that was weaponized against that, of course, as well, you know, uh, since if you really look at it, since the very beginning, 48, you know, everyone, all the Arab the countries came and, and fought Israel and fought the independence war military. I, my grandma tells me, you know, when they came, they were just starving, no, like they would literally have no food. The Iraqi, they weren't, it wasn't really a military, it wasn't really support. It was a very, very poor countries who sent very ill-trained uh, people to like protect Palestine, but it was a joke, right? There was no competition, let's say it that way. <laughs> And and th this story continued, right, with 67 and 73, you know, and the war with Egypt and, you know, everything. And and I think now this bullied uh, boy has been sitting and suffocating on a very sm small boy that has been there and they're not even noticing or something. The public, I mean, I think the leadership is noticing and is very strategic about oppressing Palestinians, but the public just don't see it that way. I've heard this from Israeli soldiers, their standards or their rules around um, how they have to be extra careful to not injure or to give enough notice. Or it seems like with the Israeli law, they're, they have to be extra careful so they don't cause any more violence, even where it may be warranted because of how they're trying to be careful about yeah. I, what is it? It's not police brutality of their soldiers. It's occupation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I also heard of these trainings. I think a lot of the soldiers that go into the military in Israel, they truly believe like many of them really. And, and that's what they tell them. You know, it's the most moral army in the world. That's Avachi Musari Baulam. And uh, I think a lot of people and, and you could hear testimonies about the disillusions of that morality. If you go to the testimonies of breaking the silence, for example, or combatants for peace, you know, all these ex-soldiers, veterans who decided to basically, you know, break the silence and provide testimonies. But you also don't need the testimonies. And nowadays with the, with the social media and with the, well, there are a lot of organizations that are training Palestinians to basically document harassings and arrests and raids, house raids, house to all of these things, and killings, of course, unfortunately. Just fun fact, since the beginning of the year, there has been more than one Palestinian dead on average per day. Those are not, you know, some of them are kids, some of them are old women. Those are not, you know, targeted people, I don't think. The Israeli army is really trying to minimize the suffering of the Palestinian people while oppressing them and occupying them. I don't know what to say about that, you know, because I, I don't like to talk about morality in that sense, because the, the soldiers are also a victim of that system in many ways, even though they are also that effective oppressor and aggressor. So it's very hard for me to talk about that because it's it's boys. It's 19 year old boys who like oppress and who and if torture. you look at the terrorist attacks very often, they are yeah, executed by there. young, 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 young. Yeah, same it's States. just such a sad reality. One more thing, and you might hate that question also, but um, I've heard people say, why can't the Palestinians just be happy? Because by living in an Israeli state, they get so much more than they would have if it was operated like Gaza's being operated or Ramallah. 
we're talking healthcare, education, employment opportunities. You mean Palestinian citizens of Israel? Palestinian which is citizens small, of Israel. It's a small fraction of the Palestinian people. Because most of them are illegal Palestinians? Is that what you're saying? By illegal, I mean they don't have documents. They live in occupied territories. They don't live in Israeli work within yeah, Israel. So I'm work. talking about Israeli Palestinians. Here's more words. They have a more privileged life than if it was. We definitely, we, we definitely have a better life than most people in... Actually, that's not very true. No, that's not true. I do think that we have maybe a, a higher uh, standard of living in many ways from Gaza, for example. I think it's very easy to beat uh, uh, the Gazan standard of life. You know, it's, it's the biggest humanitarian crisis on earth uh, as of this moment. But compared Actually, to a more, and to in, more sophisticated in, Middle Eastern society. Yeah. It's my homeland and I don't have a say, like I literally experience conditional, other than the fact that I'm class B citizen, I'm also, you know, living under conditional citizenship uh, and conditional democracy that can be, you know, under threat. Can you uh, give me examples of what that is? Like the nation state law, for example, that was passed in 2018, which was, by the way, in many ways, like a segue to the Jewish supremacist government that we have right now because it legalized any non-Jewish citizen of Israel as uh, a non-Class B citizen, basically. And that means that our education was education, culture, language, uh, healthcare, cities, infrastructure has been deprioritized and decreased in funding or deprioritized in funding. So that's one. And two, you know, if you really look at the communities, Palestinian communities in Israel, they don't actually... They live under the average of the Middle Eastern or whatever you, you perceive as the Middle Eastern standard. You know, you have tens of thousands of people living in unrecognized villages because Israel refuses to recognize these villages for over 75 years now uh, in the Negev. People who live without electricity, without buildings, actual buildings, their houses are demolished like every other year or every other month in some places, like Laraqib, for example. They live without schools extreme poverty, 60% of Palestinians in Israel are way under the poverty line. We have crazy amounts of organized crimes and violence due to illegal weapons stolen from the IDF. We have crazy death tolls and, and terrorizing organized crime families that the police has virtually done nothing about up until like two years ago where we got on the streets and we protested. One of the guys actually got shot dead by a police, a Palestinian protester, just like that. So like our our reality is actually, other than the fact that we can vote in, in the Knesset, which is now under threat, by the way, Ben Gvir and Smotrich are trying to prevent Palestinian parties from running uh, and soon probably us, our right to vote. Other than the fact that we have that and I... I acknowledge that we have a privilege, and, and I do think that means responsibility more than anything uh, to to advance our interests. Uh, but our it's not that much better, let's say it that way. And also, we deserve to live in, we, we deserve to lead our own societies and our own countries together. We're not saying, the it's just very weird for me, the concept of, 
but I'm like not choosing to live like my conditions and I'm not choosing that this is systemic oppression and systemic discrimination against me, even though I'm in my homeland. Why should I be content? Even if I'm slightly, everything is relevant, but then nothing matters if everything is relevant, right? <laughs> yeah. There's anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? This is your opportunity to talk to people who may be listening or thinking about this for the first time in such ways. This was very uh, surprising to me in a very good way. So thank you. It was surprising for me because it made me really, you asked me those questions that like annoy me so much, <laughs> uh, but you also asked them, they are never presented to me, not in a confrontational way, but just in a like curious way. They were never presented to me that way. So I was like forced to not be annoyed by them and actually like, think about them. And I love that. I love that. Um, Thank you. Well, it may be because I'm sitting here in the States. I understand everyone has limitations in their views based on how they were raised and where they live. And that's the human condition. And so I this guess is how we break it. Yeah. And I guess that the main two things that I think people should take from this is one, like keep challenging yourself and keep widening your perspective and and be tolerant and just educate yourself more responsibly. I know I try to do that all the time. And the second thing is just let's try and shift our perspective so we can create a new paradigm, a new story where uh, it's not a zero sum game and we just need to understand that there are two people here that call this place a home and they both deserve to live in, in liberty and in peace. But let's let's try and see how, how to get that to work other than compete with each other's stories and morals and values and histories. Thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable and enlightening. And I so appreciate you having the patience for my frustrating question <laughs> but i we're here to talk about those difficult questions and explore and hopefully we bring more awareness and education so we'll find hopefully. out thank you so yeah. much sally well, thank you. i hope you appreciated this episode and if you'd like to continue the conversation you can join the whatsapp discussion group by messaging me all the links are in the show notes, including the throwback episode to Ali Ashaw's episode on Black History Month, the links to become a sponsor, or actually just message me and then we talk about it. If you'd like a link to join the WhatsApp group, if you'd like a link to my launch your podcast course, all of that is in the show notes. Thank you so much for all your messages, for all your support and sponsorships. I'm Francisca. You're listening to the Francisca Show podcast on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Have an amazing week. See you next time. 